We are coming this morning to the preaching of God's Word. We're picking up in our sermon series in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I would invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5 if you have your copy of Scripture. The last time we were in Ephesians, I believe D.B. preached, and that was back on December 4th. So we have been out of this sermon series through the holiday season, through the new year. We took a little hiatus, and we were picking up where uh, D.B. brought us to, uh, preaching through Ephesians chapter 5. And we are picking up in verse 22 this morning, Ephesians 5, 22, and we're going to read down to chapter 6 for every wife's favorite passage of Scripture, every husband's favorite passage of Scripture, and every child's favorite passage of Scripture. So if, if you, and it's hard to preach on these knowing your failings, so if you feel your failings, we're all in this together. And it's good that we're here, and it's good that we're in Ephesians 5, 22 to chapter 6, verse 4. We are in the applicatory section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and uh, we have seen how, after setting out the great truths of the grace of God in the gospel in chapters 1 through 3, Paul then began to apply the gospel first to the life of all believers in the context of the local church, and generally in our relationship to the world. That's really what you see in chapters 4 and 5. The application of the gospel of God's grace in Christ among the members in the church, and then how we walk even toward those who are outside. And, and what we learn in this is that the gospel is not just facts about what Christ has done, but what bearing those great truths, those foundational truths, have on the whole sphere of our life. And, and what Paul is doing here in chapter 5 as we come to this this morning is he is now going into more specific spheres in which the gospel is doing its work. And the first of those spheres is in the Christian home, in marriage and in parenting. We'll see the importance of that, I hope, this morning as we look at this in a more focused way. But we're looking at Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22. And as Paul has said, you'll notice in verse 21 that all believers are called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, he now turns to the context of marriage. And he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, of all the accounts in church history, of all those great uh, biographical stories of church history, there is one that has often come to my mind over the years recurrently. It is a very potent example of the difficulties of marriage, even Christian marriage, even the difficulties of marriage within the context of a minister's home. It is the account of James Fraser. James Fraser was a Scottish Presbyterian pastor and theologian of the uh, first half of the 18th century. He lived in the highlands of Scotland. And uh, James Fraser, and ladies, I'm not trying to pick on wives when I tell you this story, but he had a very difficult wife. Um, by all accounts, she was not a believer, and Fraser was a very strong Christian. And as the uh, stories have been recalled, Fraser's wife was so bitter that she would refuse to ever make him any food so that congregants would have to leave him meals as he, he went home from his pastoral duties along the way because they knew that there wouldn't be any food waiting for him at home. And, and living in the highlands of Scotland, it got very cold, and as the stories go, she refused for him to use a coal burner, and, and she basically controlled the, the heat and air in the home. And so uh, Fraser, they say, would walk back and forth in the dark with his hands out, trying to keep warm um, because she would uh, berate him over just about everything. Well, I tell you that story because James Fraser is today remembered, not for those things, but because he, he wrote one of the most influential books on sanctification in the history of the church. It is still published today. Many publications of James Fraser's The Scriptural Doctrine of Sanctification or a Treatise on Sanctification. It's one of the two great volumes next to John Owen's work on sanctification. Mar uh, Walter Marshall and James Fraser wrote the two great books on sanctification. I have no doubt that his marriage played a role in that. And um, on one occasion, Fraser was gathered together at a meeting with some moderate Presbyterians, and they all were well aware of the difficulties that he had in his marriage. And, and one of the men who were present there raised his, his drink, and he said, I, I want to ask that we raise our glasses in a toast. And I want us to toast our wives, because... God has given us such wonderful wives. I want us to raise a toast to our wives. And this man turned to James Frazier, kind of poking the bear, 
And he said, perhaps our brother will raise the toast and toast to our wives. And this is what Fraser recounted. He said, yes, I will cordially join you in drinking this toast. He said, I will and I ought because my wife has been a better wife to me than any of yours have been to you. Fraser says, they said, how so? Fraser said, she has sent me seven times a day to my knees when I would not otherwise have gone, and that is more than any of you can say about your wife. <laughs> now, I tell you that story again, not in any way to single out wives over husbands, because that story may just as easily work both ways throughout human history, but because marriage is very difficult, and marriage is a spiritual battleground. Marriage is the foremost spiritual battleground. In fact, very interesting, if you took a bird's eye view of Paul's letter of Ephesians, back in chapter one, he said that God has blessed us with every blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In chapter two, he said he has raised us up spiritually and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ. And then just after this in chapter six, he says that we are engaged in a warfare with principalities and powers in the heavenly places. The context of the gospel coming to God's people is that everything that's happening in our lives is happening in, in the invisible world of the heavenly places. We are raised up with Christ in the heavenly places. We are wrestling with spiritual hosts of darkness in the heavenly places. And so it would be right for us to recognize that if that's the case, the first battleground in which that warfare occurs is in the context of marriage and family. Don't miss this. If you are struggling in the context of marriage or family, every marriage and every family is the battleground. Listen to this. Sinclair Ferguson very helpfully says, in the context of the spiritual warfare in which believers are engaged, the apostle teaches that the marriage relationship is a fundamental battleground in this fallen world in which Satan has sought to attack and destroy from the very beginning. Don't miss that. What was the first thing that the evil one sought to attack and destroy was the marriage relationship. Where was the first place that the evil one went? In the garden. It was to the husband and the wife. And he knew if he could separate them, if he could bring disunity, that he would win the battle. And so Ferguson's right as we look here in Ephesians 6 that Paul is strategically telling us that the marriage and the family is battleground context in which we so desperately need the grace of God in the gospel to do the work that it and it alone can do in securing and restoring and protecting and causing marriages to flourish and to thrive. Well, you'll notice that there in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, we have the first uh, application of the gospel into the context of marriage, and we're going to see first the gospel-shaped role of wives and husbands, and then beginning in chapter 6, 1 through verse 4, we're going to see the gospel-shaped role of children and parents, the gospel-shaped role of wives and husbands, the gospel-shaped role of children and parents will notice that Paul has, as I already pointed out in verse 21, said that all believers are to submit to one another. What, what does the gospel do? The gospel humbles me. It humbles me down to such a place that I think about 
being a blessing to others, not, not others blessing me. Um, I don't think I could ever do a survey or statistically prove this, but I have no doubt that it's true that the better part of divisions in the church, the better part of divisions in marriage, the better part of divisions between parents and children, the better part of divisions in the workplace and in every relationship is because people do not humble themselves on account of the grace of God and seek to bless others. Instead, they seek to be served rather than to serve. That is the recurrent theme in Scripture. Why, why is there so much hardship? Because we are supremely selfish by nature. Um, I think this is why Paul leaves off in verse 21 that the big blanket application here in, in the following verses, wives and husbands, parents and children, employers and employees, in the workplace, in the home, it's submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And yet when we come into the marriage relationship, there is yet another distinction. Paul is parsing God's created order, and Paul is parsing God's redemptive historical order, and he is showing us exactly how things are supposed to work in this world, how in the gospel they can work. Please, God, make them work in our marriages and in our homes. Now, Paul is setting out the ideal. As I said at the very beginning, it's difficult for me to preach on a passage like this because I know my failings. I know my selfishness. I know how often I fail to love my wife as I ought to. How, how if I look at her while I'm preaching, you're going to know why. Um, and, and you know that. Um, I've never, ever met a man or a woman who never had any problems in their marriage. And so Paul is setting out the ideal, and he's saying, here is the ideal. Notice this, first he starts with wives, and he does that because in God's created order, he created the man first and then the woman, and God built into the very fabric of creation ordinances a role relationship between wives and husbands. And so he says in verse 22, it is the call of God to wives to submit to your own husbands. Now, I know in our day and age, it is very common to hear anyone uh, who is speaking about role relations in marriage to, uh, to be responded to sharply with things like, if you say that wives need to submit to their husbands, you are fostering a culture of, divor of, of abuse. No, you're not. Not necessarily. Let me disabuse you of that notion. This is the divine authority behind what Paul is saying. And I understand that it is supremely unpopular to say that wives are to submit to their husbands. And yet what Paul does is he nuances this so sweetly. He nuances it in the way that you expect an apostle to nuance it. Notice what he says in verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, as to the Lord. Now, what Paul is going to say to the husband in a moment is that you are to love your wife, your, your, your wife as Christ loved the church, essentially as to the Lord. And then when he comes to children, he's going to say, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Now, what that means is that behind the wife, 
there is a covenant Lord. Behind the husband, there is the covenant Lord. Behind the children and the parents, there is a covenant Lord. And whatever Paul is weaving together here for the good of our families and the application of the gospel in our homes, he is doing so saying, when you look at your relationships, do not look at one another as if you couldn't see past one another. But look past one another and see the covenant Lord who is behind the marriage relationship, who is behind the relationship between parents and children. And that very naturally means that Paul is not saying that wives are to do whatever their husbands say. Paul is not saying, whatever your husband says, do it. In fact, Paul is building into here that safeguarding that the wife would only ever have to reverence and submit to her husband in so much as he is faithfully representing the Lord who is behind him. And her submission is ultimately not to her husband, but to the Lord. So that if the wife is not wanting to submit to her husband in those ways that represent the Lord, her problem is not with her husband, but with the Lord. You see, Paul is very carefully building this out. Notice he can't even take one step forward in an application without going to the gospel. Notice the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. He goes, he goes behind the husband, be, back he goes all the way back and he says, if you want to understand this application, understand that Christ is the head of the church, that, that he cares for the church, that he nurtures the church, that he gives the church his commands, that he, he, he shepherds the church, and the church loves to follow her Lord and Savior. She, she wants nothing more than to be uh, fully united with the head, who is Christ. And then Paul says, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, let me say this this morning. Um, there are abuses of what we call complementarianism. The wife is to be a complement to her husband, a helper suitable to, comparable to. There can be abuses to that. There, there can be sort of chauvinistic patriarchalism. We're going to deal with that in a second. But, but I, don't, I don't want us to miss this point that, that God has given very specific roles in the marriage confine. And if the marriage is ever to thrive, those roles are to be pursued in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. It's the only way the marriage is ever going to thrive. You know, I, I've always said and used to say to my wife when I would see marriages I knew were not healthy in, in situations I was close to, um, usually what kept them together was money and medicine. But when that money and medicine was gone, you saw exactly what that relationship was. You see, that, that's never the, the catch-all. More travel, more date nights. Those are, those are all good things. That, those are not what make a sweet marriage. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, as the church submits to Christ. Now, this is interesting. There's only one S word to the wives. There are three S words, if I can put it that way, to the husbands. And I want to say this at the outset, the husband has a vastly more difficult call than the wife. So if there are any men here thinking, that's right, my wife needs to submit to me, buckle up, because this is coming at you. 
And this is not fun, but it is very important. Notice this. Notice Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What does, what does headship on the part of the husband toward the wife look like? Number one, it looks like sacrificial love. It looks like sacrificial love. It doesn't look like him saying, I want you to do this for me. It looks like, how can I lay down my life for her? Listen very carefully. Just like the wife has to take the first part of this application to herself, husbands need to focus all their attention on this. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever thought about this, but that's perfect love. And none of us have ever loved perfectly. That's the ideal That's the goal, that's the pattern, that's the motivation, that's the impetus. And husbands are to think very intentionally on a very regular basis, how am I sacrificially loving my wife? I'm going to charge the men here who are married, you need to be asking yourself that on a daily basis. How am I sacrificially loving my wife? How am I willing to deny myself to please her? How can I bless her? What can I do for her? Rather than, what can she do for me? How can she serve me? The other is not biblical headship. The other is not the biblical pattern Paul's setting out here. Now, there is a tenderness to that, isn't there? Um... Paul is barely going to even get into the application to husbands before he goes off on a gospel tangent. And notice, Paul says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. It's as if Paul has forgotten the earthly marriage and he is caught up in with what Christ has done. Christ didn't just come and die on the cross and leave people where they were. He laid down his life out of love for his bride. He won her through his dying love. He cleanses her of her pollution and her uncleanness, her impurity. He nurtures her. He cares for her. He's tender. He he uses all the spiritual means, especially of his word, to build her up and to make her splendid. I've already told you the first word for husbands is sacrificial love. The second is sanctifying care. Sanctifying care. Paul says that Christ cares with great tenderness for the sanctification of his people. I I maybe have said this to you. I maybe haven't, so forgive me if I have, but it is, it is, such a good thing that the Lord Jesus cares vastly more about our sanctification than we do. It is such a good thing that Christ cares far more about our holiness than we do. He gave himself, Paul says, that he might sanctify his church, cleansing her by the washing of water with the word. Now, clearly there is an application here. When Paul speaks of the marriage relationship, he does so in spiritual terms. What is the most important thing that my wife needs from me? What is the most important thing 
that a Christian husband should render to his wife. He should care about her spiritual needs. He should be leading her in the word. He should be speaking God's word to her. He should be seeking to lead in accord with God's word. You see, it's not just what Christ is doing. It's what Christ is doing through the husband for the wife, just as Christ is doing it for his church when we're gathered in worship. And there is meant to be the goal of building up the wife. Notice Christ is committed to presenting his people to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. His goal in loving his wife, his goal in caring for his people that he bought with his blood is to make sure that they will on that great wedding day in the consummation be without spot. That the work he's doing Lord's Day by Lord's Day, as we heard last week, that this is the rehearsal of the wedding supper of the Lamb, that the work that Christ is doing every Lord's Day is he's, he's washing his people. He's washing you. He's washing you. Because by the time we come to the next Lord's Day, we have so much we need to be washed of. Our minds are so easily polluted, corrupted, our hearts have engaged in loving the world too much. And when we come, he sends his word out and he purifies his people until on that last day, his bride is going to be presented to him spotless in holiness. And the thing that husbands should care about more than anything, more than the financial provisions that they owe to their wives, more than the physical affection that they owe to their wives, more than the being present with their wives and listening to them and caring for them is that they would shepherd them spiritually. Now, I'm going to make a similar application, Lord willing, when we come to parents and children, but I want to charge the men who are present here that you would commit to that, that you would commit to shepherding your wife spiritually. You would commit to reading God's word with her, that you would commit to praying with and for her. Um, if you're not doing that, you will never love your wife as Christ loved the church. It will never happen. No matter how much you want the marriage to get better, it will never get better. That's why Paul actually gives us one thing. This is Paul's whole marriage manual. There's one thing. Husbands are to lay down their lives sacrificially. Husbands are to seek to sanctify their wives spiritually. And notice this. All of that is built... And what Paul says in verses 28 and following, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. What is, what is Paul saying? How, how can I learn to lay down my, my life for my wife sacrificially as Christ did for the church? How can I care spiritually for my wife, making sure that she is being sanctified under the ministry of God's word? There is one way, and that is that I would be selfless, in my devotion to my wife, what Paul is actually saying is not love yourself enough so that you'll start loving your wife, but what he's saying is love your wife in every way that you would love yourself, which requires that you are selfless in going out in that love toward her. In the same way that it's natural for you to please yourself and your own body. Um... We live in a culture that's obsessed with exercise, diet, 
every kind of physical, renovative practice and plan and program. And those things are not bad, but, but when they become consuming things, you very easily see what Paul's talking about. In so much as people are longing to care for themselves, husbands ought to be selflessly seeking to care for their wives. Let me say this just briefly. It would be wrong. Oh, Lord, get in front of this for me. It would be wrong for you to get in your car to go home today and to turn to your spouse and say, I hope you were listening. I get to say that. You don't. (laughs) It would be wrong for me not to apply God's very specific word to me and instead seek to focus on what he has said to my wife. The right response would be, Lord, I have failed miserably in so many ways. Would you make me, husbands, more like Christ, wives, more like the church? Would you help me to fill that role in a way that brings you glory? Would you cause my marriage to thrive because I'm doing what you have called me to do and I'm focusing on who you want me to be. Look, that's the whole point of the James Frazier illustration. What was James Frazier doing right? He was loving his wife. As difficult as she was, he realized the benefit that Christ gave him even to be praying for her in a way he wouldn't have prayed otherwise. That's, that's this passage in action, in application. There are estimates, and to the best of my ability, they're probably somewhere around 30-some percent of all professing Christians' marriages end in divorce. Not 50 percent, it's probably 30. That's one in three. I remember my dad telling me often as a boy he had gone to a reformed seminary, and 10 to 12 years out of seminary when I was a boy, he would go through a list of all the men he had been in seminary with at this reformed seminary who had left their wives for other women. And it was like seven out of 15 men he was in class with. Uh, That ought to be staggering to us. That here were men preparing for gospel ministry who were not doing what was most necessary in the home first and foremost and guarding and nourishing and protecting and preserving that Christian marriage. Here's the good news this morning. No matter where your marriage is, because it could be terribly on the rocks, and if it is, there is hope in the gospel. The apostle doesn't say, if you're doing this, good for you. He says, here's the goal. Pursue it. Make it your intention to pursue the roles that God has called you to, And let the gospel transform and shape the marriage into what it's supposed to look like, a picture of Christ and the church. I mentioned to you last Lord's Day that Jonathan Edwards had made that great statement that God created the world, uh, that he might get a bride for his son. 
And there are this, these marvelous pictures of the type between Adam and Christ, what God was doing in the garden and how that was preparing us for what Christ would do with his church. And listen to this, Matthew Henry, I love this. Matthew Henry said, Adam was a type of him who was to come out of the side of Christ, the second Adam, his spouse, the church was formed. When he slept the sleep, the deep sleep of death, death on the cross, in order of which his side was pierced and opened, there came out blood and water, blood to purchase his church, water to purify it to himself. Now listen, just as God took a church out of the pierced side of Christ, as he had given Adam a wife out of his very side, God has knit together husbands and wives in such a close union. Listen to this. Paul says in verse 32, this mystery is profound. I am saying it refers to Christ and the church, and he quotes Genesis in verse 30, we are members of his body. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. That means when I think about my wife, who is vastly better than me, I am to think about what a marvelous mystery it is that God has made me one with her. We are no longer two, we are one. Wives and husbands thinking of each other in those ways will radically transform how you approach the marriage, how you speak to one another, what you do together, how you encourage each other. Um, it's a profound mystery, the union that Christ has with every blood-bought person. You know, just as an aside here, we, we are so united to Jesus. If you've been bought with his blood, if you're a true believer, if Christ shed his blood and you're trusting him, you are so united to Jesus that he considers you bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. Charles Spurgeon has this great sermon on that passage, and, and he says something like this. He says, whenever you feel your sinfulness, whenever you're struggling with your deficiencies and, and all the things that you, you don't like about where you're at spiritually. He said, go to the gospel Lord and say to him, Lord, do not hate your own flesh. Nourish me. Isn't that awesome? Go to the, go to the gospel Lord and say, Lord, do not hate your own flesh. Nourish me. Spurgeon says, have you been for a while without visits from Christ? Have you lost the light of his countenance? Do not be satisfied with that nourishing. Go further and plead for cherishing. Ask the Lord Christ for love tokens, for gentle words, for secret blandishments, known to saints and none but to saints. Think about that. The privilege you have if you're united to Jesus is you can go and say, Lord, you have loved me perfectly. Help me to love you out of that overflow of your love for me. Um, what a difference this would make in our lives if we did that. I want to talk briefly, secondly, about the gospel-shaped role of children and parents. Paul has subsumed this, connected it, and yet he gives a word first to children and then to fathers. And um, oftentimes, children take a front seat in marriage to the marital relationship, and when the children leave the home, the marriage falls apart because the parents made the children their marriage rather than their spouse. 
And so Paul subsumes this. He makes this secondary and yet part of the Christian home. And he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. You know, it was said of Jonathan Edwards. This is amazing. I just read this for the first time recently. Um, Jonathan Edwards, as some of you may know, had a lineage of descendants that were lawyers, doctors, pastors, presidents of seminaries and colleges and universities, this incredible pedigree of offspring. And one theologian surmised that part of that might have been because of the nurture and the training and the care and the love and the, the respect of the children to the parents in the Edwards home. And And I'd never read this. He said, when Jonathan and Sarah Edwards walked into a room, the children stood up, not in some kind of militaristic way, but out of love and respect. Our culture doesn't know that. And it's not okay. It's not okay to say, but we don't live in that time. Paul says very clearly, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Honor your father and mother that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. A very clear statement, if Christian parents are seeking to raise Christian children, then children have a responsibility to submit themselves to those parents. I was in a, I was in a thrift store yesterday. Don't judge me. It was, it was a good thrift store. And there were three pre-teenagers running around wreaking havoc and noticeably defiant throughout the whole store. And my first thought was, what kind of home have they grown up in? Now, that's not always a rule. You can grow up in a very loving and godly home. I did, and I was very rebellious. So it's not a rule, but generally, we live in a society that does not value the uh, fact that God has called parents to shepherd their children and children to submit to their parents and to obey them in the Lord in so much as the Lord and his word is governing. Now, I want to say something this morning because there are all these dangers when we approach the subject. You see Paul almost trying to balance everything out. And notice what Paul does immediately on the heels of saying, children, obey your parents in the Lord. In verse 4, he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Now, why, why would Paul... Why would the apostle feel compelled to say, children do not provoke, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, except whenever there is a serious attempt at parenting children who are sinners, because they're all sinners, we're all sinners, whenever there is a serious attempt at parenting, there is the sinful ditch of being heavy-handed with children. And if I can say this this morning, I have seen in serious-minded, reformed Christian homes, a pervasive heavy-handedness of fathers toward children. It doesn't matter how much Turretin you've read, how much Calvin you've read. It doesn't matter how much of the Bible you have memorized. It doesn't matter how much you can talk about reformed theology and big talk, all the knowledge that you have. If we are not gentle and patient with our children, it means nothing. And in fact, it will break our children. It will break them. I had the unfortunate experience of getting somewhat close to a family many, many years ago in which the father told me about his strategy 
as a dad, it, it almost broke my heart. I was 20-something years old, didn't have children. I don't think at that time, maybe Micah had just been born. And, and this dad had several children. They were a serious-minded, reformed home, homeschool family. And the father said, I, I've built my, my parenting around a merit system. I was like, oh boy, where are we going? And he said, I have tokens. And when my children obey, I give them these tokens. And when they've accumulated enough points, they can buy privileges like spending time with dad. Y'all, it broke my heart. If you think the relationship of God the Father is like that, you are warped, seriously warped. And the danger, the danger is the only father that our children know is the father at the dining room table. And most of our children are not mature enough to sift through and to sift through all the bad and keep the good. And so there is a great weight, even as children are called to obey their parents in the Lord and honor their father and mother, there is a very serious call that fathers and or mothers would be gentle, be kind, if I can make this one application this morning, that you would show a lot of affection to your children. You know, the thing that hurt me the most about that man's parenting was not that he had an extremely warped view of parenting. It's that I knew that his children were not receiving the affection that they needed from him. God the Father lavishes his love on us. Sinful though we are, Christ loved us when we were dead in sins. He found, us, he found us wallowing in our sin, and he washed us, and he made us his bride, and he pours his love out, and he's gentle and nurturing and patient and kind and compassionate and tender. And that is the goal in, in the relationship between parents to children. And as that happens, and as we treat our children, each according to how God is uniquely crafted them and given them unique personalities and we we go in in gentleness and we go in to instruct them lovingly in the word and the gospel we can expect the blessing of god in our homes and our families i want to leave you with this this morning if you are sitting here and maybe you are about to get married and these things um, are things I would encourage you to meditate deeply on. If you are parents of young children, I would encourage you to implement these things as soon as possible. If you are parents of grown children who are wandering, I would encourage you to continue pursuing them and to seek to model these things even as they're out from under your headship. It's never too late for the gospel to shape and transform our relationships. Even the hardest marriages and the hardest families are opportunities for the gospel to work. That's what the apostle would say to you this morning. Our homes are battlegrounds, but they're opportunities for the gospel to work. And the Lord wants his grace to run quickly into our marriage relationships, into our relationships with our children, for his glory and our good. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this word. We thank you that you have taught us what marriage ought to be. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have not only taught us in your word, you have 
exhibited it by your dying love for us. We thank you that you have redeemed for yourself a bride in your church, that we are part of your bride. We thank you that you have taught us how gentle and patient, how loving and kind, how wise and instructive you are towards your bride. We pray that you would give wives and husbands grace, that you would heal those marriages that have been ripped apart by sin and selfishness. We pray that you would cause those marriages that may be uh, spiritually healthy to thrive and grow even more. We pray, O God, that you would work in our children and in our relationship of them to us and us to them. And so, Lord Jesus, would you cause the gospel to bring about great healing and great fruitfulness in our homes. We pray that the evil one would not gain a foothold and that you would show the victory of the Lord Jesus in our relationships. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.